Hey East Meets West listeners, in this week's episode, Albert and I break down ChatGPT, including its recent update, ChatGPT4. We start off talking about the tech behind ChatGPT and then explore some of its key use cases, like disrupting Google as the king of search. Finally, we finish up with some reflections on how generative AI will play out in Asia. Keep listening and enjoy. Welcome to the East Meets West podcast, a podcast about understanding Asia tech and how Asia tech affects the world. My name is Dan, joining me as always from Astral Ventures. Albert, how are you doing? Good, Mr. Worldwide. Once again, traveling every episode in another country, which uh, where in the world is Dan Trevanian this time? Sydney, Australia. So uh, not, not traveling too far around from my home, but um, it's good to be here. As you said, Albert, scorching weather outside, but this is, this is why you want to be in Sydney. This is the weather that people come for. It's pretty unbelievable, to be honest. I don't want like people to, to come into this episode and immediately hear a couple of mouthfuls about the weather, but it is honestly scorching in, in Sydney. <laughs> There's no kind of easy segue into what we're talking about today, though, unfortunately. No, no. I mean, it's on, I think, everyone's news feeds, timelines, etc. Everyone is talking about chat GPT. I think it was probably worthwhile, Albert, that we held off a little bit. I mean, I remember when ChatGPT was first released, you were dropping it in all the Facebook Messenger chats with us in the friendship groups. Uh, You were an early adopter, one might say. Uh, But I think it's been best that we've had some time to actually sort of use it ourselves, try it out, now see this next um, generation of it, ChatGPT4, before we start actually doing an episode on it. To start off with Albert, though, what is ChatGPT? Yeah, good, good question, and I'm I'm glad we're doing this now because you know now that there's ChatGPT four and and the kind of the initial noise has died down, we've had a bit of time to play and digest. So ChatGPT um, is a large language model, and if anyone don't, doesn't understand what a large language model is, uh, it's effectively a type of machine learning model that is trained to predict um, the relationship or analyze the relationship and context between uh, like a string of words or a paragraph of text or language. And so if you think about, um, you know, like a string of, of text or a sentence, the way uh, ChatGPT works or other large language models is, is for any given string of words or sentence, it's effectively predicting what the next sentence is going to be. So like Dan went to Indonesia to, and then it'll try to predict what the word after to is. So Dan went to Indonesia to work would be a complete sentence. So an LLM could try to predict that using the model that it's been trained on. If it's been trained on really terrible models and terrible data, it might say something like, Dan went to Indonesia to cat, and that sentence doesn't actually make sense. But that's effectively how these large language models work. And then specifically for ChatGPT, it's like a large language model that's kind of been built into like a chat window, so it acts like a chatbot. You can message it something and say, hey, I would love for you to explain me how chat GPT works. And so I actually did this um, prior to our last recording, Dan. I went into chat GPT, I've typed this in. This is the prompt I put in the chatbot. Pretend you are a podcast that discusses technology. Explain an LLM. So I guess my um, rationale was it will know what an LLM is. 
Welcome to the talk, uh, the Tech Talk podcast. Today we'll be discussing LLM, which stands for Master of Laws or Legum Magister in Latin. And LLM <laughs> is a postgraduate degree in law, that blah, blah, blah. So it's obviously been trained and historically LLM refers to a Master of Laws. And so if you look through all the data around the world, you type in LLM, that's what it's going to come up with. So I had to kind of fine tune the prompting, pretend you're a podcast that explains and discusses technology, explain to me simply what a large language model is. And it, simply put, it's a type of artificial intelligence model that understands processes and generates human-like language. Yeah, a really, really good overview, Albert. Uh, and I think the analogy about, you know, you have this sentence and then it's predicting what the next word is. And that's where, you know, a lot of complaints, I think, you know, somewhat unfairly, because you're not going to have something as innovative as, and as fresh as this without, you know, kinks and quirks to it. But ChatGPT, one of its things is that it will spit out answers that look really, really good, look really, really solid, but could be completely factually incorrect. Uh, so when you're talking about that analogy or a sentence that ends in cat, ChatGPT3, which was the previous edition, had gone to the point where it was good enough, it was always going to have complete sentences and it's going to sound really authoritative. But where it was falling down, was, with that example, there's a perfect one out of LLM, is it just might be completely misconstruing the prediction trail. And as it goes off down one end of that sort of, uh, if you think of it like a fork in the road, it just completely misses the point. And that's where the prompts need to be uh, cleared up uh, to help guide it along the way. One of the interesting things for me, Albert, just as we talk about what is ChatGPT, if we take a step back, everyone's talking about it as you know the precursor to artificial intelligence, AI, not just sort of in a B2B place, but in sort of a B2C space where you've got something which anyone can use and some of the functions which people have talked about ChatGPT really disrupting is the ability to code without actually knowing how to code. So you can type in a, a particular function that you want done and you can ask them to generate the code for it. Uh, you can also generate content if you want, you know, just like there, you could pull out a, a transcript for a podcast and then read off it. You can generate a poem, you can generate a screenplay, all these kinds of things. Which there, there's use case which I think are really interesting, but if you were to look at the sort of broader AI landscape out of it, where do you put the use cases of ChatGPT? Like what's it used for? What's it not? And what are other AI products out there which perhaps aren't getting as much buzz as ChatGPT? Yeah, I mean the the the, the use cases are, are super broad, but let me, maybe if I take a step back and, and kind of talk about how these models actually work at at least a high level, which kind of explains a lot of different things. So like. When you talk about, you know, you can tell it to code or build a website or build a particular module of code, what, it, what it's using is it's using its language base to, to then build that. And so often, and ChatGPT and other LLMs will do this with authority, but will often be wrong. And so the way that these models are constructed is like with vector language linkages. So if you imagine like any language, say English, or Chinese is a good one to talk about as well, but say English. Um, a lot of those words in English have, you know, different meanings and you have similar words will have a similar set of meanings. The way that natural language processing works, which is what underpins any large language models, is that it converts words and their meanings into vectors, which are effectively a set of numbers. And then so when you have these vectors, 
that live in a you know computer program or whatever, you can then start to leverage and see how specific numbers or words that are represented by numbers as vectors are similar to each other. And so the way that machine learning works is that it takes these number representation of words and then words that are similar to that because the numbers are very similar and then forms linkages between those words. So for example, um, uh, the word man and the word woman would have very similar vector linkages and vector representations because the words have very similar meanings and similar representations. Like the inverse of that would be like the word phone and the word, say, train will have very different vector representations. And so trying to build relationships between the word train and the word phone will take a bit more compute than, say, the word man and woman. So that, that's how those things work. And so if you go back to the top of this podcast when we were talking about what GPT is and what LLM is, it's using these relationships between these words that are represented as numbers to then predict what the next word will be. And so ChatGPT isn't like some coding genius. It's been trained with, uh, for lack of a better word, all the text in human history. So the internet, every book that's been written, every piece of article that's been written, basically any published text that, uh, that's been fed into the algorithm and turned into vectors. And then based on the text, then they've got representations of what comes next. So like in Shakespeare, if you read Shakespeare, you know what comes next after a particular word. Chat GPT knows, hey, pretend you're Shakespeare. I want you to write some like Shakespearean poem. It knows based on the relationships between Shakespearean works because it's been fed that, how it works. And then to answer your question, Dan, specifically, like these use cases, like the way it writes code is because there are people on the internet who've published their code or have gone to Wikipedia or Quora or Stack Overflow or something and had a question about how do I program this or how do I rewrite this? And ChatGPT has been trained to do that. So it may or may not be correct. Um, and there's plenty of instances where it's not correct, but it can be useful to do those types of analysis with the right data set. Yeah, I mean, the, the two use cases that I think people have most honed in on, uh, and starting with the first one, is that this is like a Google killer, uh, particularly now that Microsoft has integrated ChatGPT into its Bing searches. The idea being, you know, if I search for something on Google, like, you know, what is a, a jerk chicken recipe, then I'll get a million results for jerk chicken, marinade, etc. I don't know which is the best one. I have to click into a, a, a website and then I have to navigate ads and all these other pop-ups and other things potentially. Whereas ChatGBT is going to get a similar prompt, but it will just write out the recipe straight away. Now you lose something there. You lose the ability of choice. And what you're making up for that, what you're hoping for is that ChatGBT is authoritatively giving you, you know, one of the best recipes possible. So there is a trade-off there. But what really, I think, founds the premise of ChatGBT usurping Google is this idea that they're correct. You know, with Google, they're not claiming to be correct. They're hoping to provide you a list of answers. But ultimately, it's you as you sift through the search results to find the answer that's best that matches to what your need is. And I think where people have sort of missed the point on ChatGPT is, as you've just, just laid out, Albert, 
it's generative, it's predictive. I think it's a high bar to ever expect it to have the level of precision and correctness to ever replace something like Google. What's your view of ChatGPT as like a disruptor of Google search? Yeah, I mean, there's probably two things I want to decompartmentalize here, which is like ChatGPT, which is like the, the freely available chat window that lets you access a version of GPT-3, which is an LLM, and then like LLMs more broadly in their specific use case. And so I guess to answer your specific question around search, there's always like an intention with search, which is like, I want, know, I want to know the answer, or I'm exploring something, or I'm using search for this specific function. And so if it's the first thing, which is I want a specific answer for something, like how do I cook X recipe, or how do I do this particular task, I think GPT is already really good for that because for the most part, people on the internet don't lie about how to create roast chicken, for example. Like there's a thousand roast chicken recipes. There's slight variations of roast chicken recipes, but the people who publish roast chicken recipes aren't publishing like terrible fake roast chicken recipes that are purposely bad. But there are people on the internet who come up with fake Albert Einstein quotes. So if you went to ChatGPT and asked for an Albert Einstein quote, it will probably give you an Albert Einstein quote that is like half correct and then half incorrect, where it's like the first half is the Albert Einstein quote and the second half is, is just a made-up quote. That's because there's a lot of fake Albert Einstein quotes out there, but there aren't a lot of fake <laughs> roast chicken recipes out there. And so I think it just depends on with the intention behind the search as to whether ChatGPT specifically kills something like Google or becomes something that like fringes upon Google's of like ginormous market share and monopoly on search. I think the other thing that's probably more interesting though is like how you use specific large language models that are trained using something like GPT-3 or GPT-4, which we haven't yet talked about. And then you take that algorithm and that model and apply it to what they call a specific corpus. And like corpus is like machine learning to speak for like a specific body of work. So uh, I don't know if we really want to get into this now, Dan, but um, a good example is like a textbook. Like, you know, university textbooks, law textbooks, I'm sure many people who are listening to this podcast are familiar with university textbooks. They are thick. They are thick with like multiple Cs. And so these like textbooks have all this information in them. But as a student, you can't just go up to a textbook and say like, tell me what the law is for this very specific fishing thing. Or, you know, how do I calculate this chemistry equation right? you've got to like shift through the textbook and so you can get a large language model like gpt that's been trained using these like vectors but then apply only specifically to one body of work or a corpus of text as they like to call it so that you don't have kind of this bleeding or this misinformation that's previously come from the data it's been trained on. So that, that's something that's like a specific use case that people are exploring right now, which is how you leverage a specific LLM and, and how it's been trained and those like vector relationships, but then apply those vector relationships specifically to one body of text or multiple bodies of text and then write it so that it doesn't reference the training text. It only references you know, that, that new text. And textbooks are really good for that because there's answers and questions. So you can ask the GPT model that's been trained and then used on a textbook 
a question and then you can quickly go to the textbook and see, is that the right answer? And that's how you know your machine's working. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a, a good way to, to enter my second sort of point on ChatGPT use case, which I think is content, because I think there is just so much content out there, which, which frankly is, is somewhat mind-numbing. And, you know, you have professional script writers, content creators or whatever, who are, who are literally just surfing the internet and then repackaging what they read, find, see, memes, whatever, and regurgitating it out again. And that's something to me that ChatGPT is very, very good at. And there's even a second layer to that, Albert, using what you were talking about there in terms of this specific corpus of work. To me, that, that just goes back to the authenticity point, you know, the reliability point. Because if you've got a ChatGPT, which has been only fed authoritatively Einstein quotes, which we know are 100% genuine, then that ChatGPT would be much more reliable, would say generating inspirational uh, IG posts based on Einstein quotes you know and that's which i that's where i think there's just going to be a huge advantage there where at the moment there is industries or there are industries based on people typing away like monkeys on their computer to generate this sort of content and that's very easily replaced by something like chat gpt yeah content is a really good example because if you think about it like it has been fed basically all the text up to a certain date i think it's like september 2021 which you think about the history of the world, like there's probably not going to be that much new content that gets fed into any other large language model. So there's a lot of content there. You could you could type a scene, say like Star Wars, Luke Skywalker, Dark Vader, like into ChatGPT or another large language model and say like, okay, Darth Vader and, Star War- and Luke Skywalker are fighting. Luke, you know, cuts off his hand. What should be the next thing in the scene? give me 10 ideas and I'll list out 10 ideas but those ideas are ideas that aren't novel they're like net new oh they're they're not novel they're not net new they're things that exist previously so now you have 10 cliche outcomes that are overused and as a writer you can be like I'm going to avoid all of these 10 things because the audience has seen them before and now write something else so it's not only good for content creation to like leverage other people's idea you can actually see across history what are all the things that people expect and now you can write something that is completely novel. I want to sort of move out of, of those two use cases I mentioned, so content and then search. And I think it's because at the moment we're thinking about ChatGPT as the chat box, as you said, Albert, but there is this world where GPT is just going to underpin all these other services and potential use cases. And what's strong to, sprung to mind to me is with ChatGPT4. So for those that don't know, there's been an update and the big update to it is it's multimodal. In other words, you know, it can uh, review, generate tailored responses, etc., to a whole host of images, text, video, all that kind of stuff. So multimodal. And the use case which people are finding very, very interesting is that you can take a photo, say, of uh, a grocery cart, and then it can generate recipes based off the images that it sees. And to me, like a really easy use case then is, well, what if you're a refrigerator company, you want to have a differentiator in the marketplace. So you install a camera in your, your fridge, you uh, have ChatGPT connected to it so that at any given point, whatever's in the fridge, on the front of the fridge of the screen, and it'll generate recipes based off what's inside the fridge at any given time. Uh, and then you can link that up with Amazon and it can actually purchase you the missing ingredients, things like that. Like that to me is a very tangible and easy to see future based on the technology that ChatGPT gives. 
Agree. I think the if anyone hasn't watched the chat G, the the GPT four demo, it, you should definitely watch it. It's got what Dan's described, which is you know you can take a photo of a fridge. It'll tell you what to cook in the fridge. There's there's a great demo where they they draw out on a piece of paper what a website could look like. They take a photo, they send it to GPT four, and say like build a website that looks like this. And this is a hand drawing, and then it'll spit out like the HTML and the JavaScript to then build that code. So when Dan talks about it being multimodal. That's what it means. Like you can analyze text with videos and photos with text and things like that. It's pretty incredible. I think, uh, I mean, there's lots of really cool use cases that you could do. You could do like AI generated video games. And so you can have a video game where you have a base layer, like a base plot, and then you can generate the world around you, the monsters, the NPCs, how they interact with each other, all as AI based on your interactions so that the game itself is completely unique to you outside of a broader overarching storyline. That's like one specific use case that is super interesting. Obviously, there's like the textbook use case. There's there's music, like generate me music that makes me feel this way or a video that makes me feel this way. And now we can start to think about that and do that. I think one that I'm, you know, really, really excited about is like how people use proprietary data to then generate something very interesting. So... Let's talk about your um, recipe example for a second, Dan. Like the top chefs in the world don't publish their recipes online. Like if you're um, like Claire Smith, and if you don't know Claire Smith, she's like a um, three Michelin star chef in the UK. She's got a a restaurant here in Sydney as well. She doesn't publish her recipes online. She's not going to be like, "Hey, hey, this is how I cook this thing. So if you take a photo of your fridge and say, I want you to make me something that like Claire Smith would make, it can't tell you that. But imagine if Claire Smith got all the top chefs in the world and pulled their recipes together and then sold that data so that you could emulate high-quality cooking and recipes in your kitchen. Then that's a game-changer, and that's like proprietary data. And so these large language models are trained on internet data and historical data. But there's lots of data that exists outside the internet that you could leverage. And, and Dan, this is another really good use case, is like law firms. Like law firms have all this proprietary data, like briefs they've worked on, contracts, things like that. That doesn't exist on the internet. You could leverage an LLM to create like a top-tier law firm standard of contracting if you could leverage an LLM over you know, that corpus specifically of data. That, that, that's really sparked a lot of ideas for me, Albert, because now I can start to see how the sort of economy of chat GPT builds out because the, the, the way I'd see that working is chat GPT as a, as a free version and then they move to, say, a subscription model with different verticals. So you could have chat GPT food, chat GPT law, and you're paying a, a subscription cost for those. As part of that, you know, when I write into chat GPT, the base version, draft me a JV agreement, a joint venture agreement. It's going to give me what's readily available on the internet, which frankly is, is pretty basic. But if I'm a sophisticated organization, I pay for the chat GPT law, and then suddenly it's been ingested with actual data from law firms. It can give me a much more sophisticated answer. And the quid pro quo there is that chat GPT gets a subscription from the consumer and then it's paying the law firms, you know, a, a clip or some sort of fee for the right of its use of, of data, like in any other licensing agreement. And the same with recipes there. You'd have that relationship between ChatGPT and the Michelin star chefs, uh, but then the subscription costs for ChatGPT food to the consumer who wants, you know, 
a roast chicken, which is a little bit more than what you'd get on a basic website recipe. So that it's really, really fun to work through that because it's just, it's, it's on the precipice, it's on the verge. And if anything, ChatGPT is moving really, really quickly. Uh, I think something that's maybe gone a little bit under the radar because this isn't an app that we're installing on our phones, but the speed in which ChatGPT is, is being adopted. So, you know, there's been some analysis done that essentially it's the fastest growing app of all time. Uh, two months after its launch, it has 100 million active users. It took TikTok nine months to reach the same sort of um, milestone. So really, this, this, this app, this service is, is going really, really quickly. Yeah, I, I think this is like the next step change, maybe since like cloud or mobile, right? Like if you look historically, like computers, internet, cloud, mobile, I think like AI and AI in this use case is the next biggest step change. I think what's key is it it starts to get abstracted away. Like no one goes on the internet and thinks about like, oh, my computer program is using AWS or it's using Azure, right? Like no one thinks about my Facebook is hosted on this specific server, Azure East. And so the, the next thing is like how you start to abstract away LLMs. And I think this is probably a good kind of, um, segue into like the, the competitive landscape and who else is developing LLMs because it's not like Claire Smith and all her chef friends are going to develop their own LLM. They're likely to use someone else's LLM. And so across the landscape, you know, you've got a few key players, OpenAI who run GPT-4, GPT-3, ChatGPT, and Microsoft have a very close relationship. Google have their own um, uh, LLM called Lambda and the chatbot version of Godad's Bard. Um, Meta have their own called NLLB. There's a, there's a more specific one called Hugging Face, which is um, <laughs> the LLM behind Dali. If anyone's used Dali to generate, um, you know, pictures and things like that, and then you know, doing our East meets West comparison, Baidu, which is one of the big search engines over in Asia, have got theirs called Ernie. And so if you look at all those. In that list, they're all big companies. And this is a key challenge with LLMs is that like it actually takes a lot of money and data to, to build and create an LLM because they are very sophisticated. And so I think the popular view is that these LLMs are going to be the proprietary IP of ginormous tech companies. Yeah, I mean, this is an example, and, and this is where it's interesting to look a little bit at the history of OpenAI, the, the team that built uh, ChatGPT. It started as a not-for-profit, um, founded by several people, some of which you would know, like Peter Thiel, Elon Musk, and they essentially gave it a billion dollars in seed funding. Um, and then it slowly over time progressed. It's now become for-profit uh, in various ways with, with a cap on it, and now they've really sort of hit on this business model of them licensing out the technology for profit. But at its core, it's like when you think about that initial seed money there of a billion dollars, that's what it took, not for you know hiring developers and putting them on $10 million salaries, but it is the computational power that is required to ingest hundreds of millions of dollars, of, not dollars, hundreds of millions of documents, files, images, etc and then have a computer essentially review those vectors that you're talking about, Albert. It just takes so much time and resources, which is why ChatGPT has such a close relationship with Microsoft, because Microsoft was giving them Azure credits, essentially. So maybe not uh, money straight up, but really like in-kind support 
with that computational resource. Not, not everyone's going to do that. What's going to spring up is you know, the, the second layer of services and startups and entrepreneurs who will use APIs related to ChatGPT or the others. And then there's going to be this sort of second layer of AI technology on top of that. But as you say, Albert, this is squarely going to be the domain of the key tech players, of which in the West there's a handful. You mentioned Meta, Google, Microsoft. And in the East, we've got Alibaba, Tencent, Baidu, I think, as really the main players. Yeah, I mean, compute is so expensive. And to give this a bit of context, and I've been using the OpenAI API to do a few kind of side projects and learn a bit more about how it works. And it costs me about a couple of cents per query to do that. And so that's when I'm using it for my own specific use case. Obviously, it's free if you're using just chat GPT generally. So let's say it's like, you know, two to three cents per search query. Google has 8.5 billion search queries a day. Imagine if that costs Google a couple of cents per query at 8.5. That's like, I don't know, like almost 200 or 300 million dollars a day you can see how challenging it would be for someone like Google or Meta to build that into their business because search is free and search generates, you know, obviously a lot of money for Google. But now let's layer on an additional cost of two to $300 million a day. Like you can start to see how these like AI search and, you know, how these large language models work are really only going to be reserved for people who can afford to use it, which are these ginormous companies at the moment. All right, Albert, anything you want to hit before we wrap up? Look, I think we've talked a lot. I mean, to, I mean, this is obviously very technical and not not um, usually what we talked about. So maybe let's, let's give it a quick summary. You know, we talked about what, you know, LLMs are and how they work, what GPT is, what chat GPT is, the competitive landscape. I think, you know, lastly, what I would say is it's probably worth playing around with chat GPT if you haven't yet. And there's a lot of... Um, a lot of companies now who are using either open AI or, or their own AI to do things like Canva's got their own AI, Notion has got their own AI, and you can start to play around with it and see how it works. But I think it is like phenomenal when you think about the use cases Dan talked about. It's like take a photo of your fridge, it tells you what to cook. Like how many of us have actually been in that situation? Or you could tell it like, this is what I'm feeling, where should I go eat in Sydney? Like there's there's lots of different things from like mundane tasks like that to you know heavy intellectual office based tasks it passes exams it does all these things like it's definitely worth playing around with to really understand the magnitude of this technology yeah i think it's a huge step change what i'm sort of interested particularly in, in a east meets west perspective albert is when i mention the main players there it's very clear the divide is going to be you're going to have a China series of, of chat GPTs and then you're going to have the West American version of chat GPTs and you know Chinese people can't actually access chat GPT um, so that there's, there's already these barriers and sort of firewalls in place and how the regulators deal with that I mean we're not going to do a whole episode on this but you know recent calls in America to have you know, Chinese investors divest from TikTok and sell out that's all playing out in social media and it's all going to play out with uh, these chatbots, chat GPT and AI as well. I think we're probably going to have like a two-tier two system, not two-tier, two-category system where you've got one in the West, one in the East. And what's really going to be interesting is how that plays out. We, we've talked a lot about Southeast Asia in recent episodes, Albert. Which way are those 
country is going to go. Are they going to use both of them? Are they going to predominantly use one or the other? There's going to be a really big struggle, I think, uh, internationally for the influence over who owns uh, AI generative uh, in the world. Yeah, I think it'll be really interesting when you layer like a lot of geopolitical tension uh, and information on that. Like, I don't know whether you could make the argument that like government should own large language models and there should be state sanction. And surely someone could make the case. But I think a really interesting one, even just talking about China versus the US, is like a Chinese large language model is going to be trained on the data that China allows it, right? Like GPT uh-huh. is what they call an unsupervised model. So it's been trained on a, it hasn't been trained with supervision. Chat GPT has been trained with supervision, but GPT hasn't been trained with supervision. So it's just ingested all this information. But China is going to have a supervised language model. Like it's going to filter out what goes into the machine. And there's all this censorship in China. So it's going to be really interesting to see like, they're both large language models. They both have access to a lot of similar information, but there'll be a lot of nuances because of the political tension in China as to what the answers actually produce. All right, let's finish up there. Thank you for listening to the East Meets West podcast, a podcast about understanding Asia tech and how Asia tech affects the world. Keep listening every week and we'll catch you next week's episode. Thanks again. See ya.